Welcome to another beautiful, beautiful Thursday. Today is Earth Day, and I'm so happy to be here with all of you. I have a great show planned for all of you. My guest will be Zara Tangora. She is an excellent chef and culinary consultant, and I'm really thrilled to have her on. I'll tell you more about her when I um, bring her on just a little bit. But first, I want to share with you some things going on in and around the news, some ways you can take action, and of course, share this week's recipe with all of you. First, um, being that it is Earth Day, um, I want to share with you a quote that I shared on my newsletter that came out of the North Shore Land Alliance's newsletter. And for those of you that don't know North Shore Land Alliance, they are a wonderful organization that is protecting um, green space here on Long Island. Um, they have managed to acquire many um, estates and keep them out of the hands of developers and create beautiful walking spots for people who live here. And I have to say that I benefited a lot during these COVID years, um, taking many walks in some of the estates that they have preserved. So thank you, North Shore Land Alliance. But anyway, the quote says, as individuals, we have the simple yet effective power to make our voices heard through our choices, our civic actions, and our personal interactions. What each of us does and how we do it has a huge ripple effect on our ecosystems. The theme for Earth Day 2022 is invest in our planet. What will you do to celebrate Earth Day this year? And so I'm asking all of you, what are you going to do for Earth Day? Um, our earth is in desperate need of some attention and it needs the love from all of us out there that care about the planet, um, care about um, reducing our global food footprint, care about climate change, care about food justice, care about so many things. Um, so tomorrow there is a big rally up in Albany, if you live in New York, um, a march and rally for Earth Justice. Um, I will tell you the information on it. It is um, New York State rally in Albany um, starting at 11 o'clock. Um, and we're all gathering to let Governor Hochul and the New York legislator know that they need to act with more urgency and pass climate legislation. Um, we have, you know, the Citizens Climate and Leadership um, act that was passed, and yet they're not doing what they need to do to really move that forward. So consider taking action. Um, there's lots of different events that I shared on my website. You can check them out <clears throat> or just Google Earth Day near you and find an event that you can participate in or consider making an extra donation to one of the wonderful nonprofits that are working to make our earth a better place. Um, we all need to really help because the environment needs our help. The Environmental Defense Fund is calling on all of their supporters to share a story about our planet and why you want to protect it. And I have a link for that on my website as well. But they're looking to try to gather stories from people like you and me um, and just kind of state why the planet is important to us, why nature is important to us, why the natural world and protecting all of the diversity that exists right now that is at risk of disappearing, why it's important to save that. Um, so if you can um, join in that celebration and share your personal story. 
And then, you know, in the news, I guess the, the thing that I was writing about was, you know, the mask mandate for public transportation. I think there's going to be a fight for that. People are trying to appeal it. Um, I heard an interesting uh, program on NPR this morning talking about how airplanes actually happen to be one of the safer places one, once you're in the air because they recirculate the air so much. But when you're sitting on the runway and you're not moving, it's really bad. But actually, the worst place is in buses. Um, you know, supposedly the subways have air circulating and a good filter system, but buses do not. And when you're in a closed bus, um, think of who rides buses mostly. You know, it's low-income people, um, very often um, Black and Hispanic people, and they are certainly um, at high risk for the COVID infection. And buses seem to be the worst place. So if you are on a bus, <clears throat> you might want to consider keeping your mask on. Um, I want to share with you this week's recipe. I've made similar recipes in the past, but this time I, I combined beet greens with leeks and I made a wonderful pate. And so um, this is a beet green and leek pate. You're gonna start with a bunch of beet tops and that's the part of beets that we used to always throw away. And they're so great. Um, and as we're trying to waste less, um, we're trying to use these tops. You can also use carrot tops in this recipe and it would be great. So a bunch of beet tops, two leeks, um, the tops, the um, dark green part you're going to remove. You can save those and make a stock with them. Um, but we're going to use only the light green and white parts. Two stalks of celery diced, a cup of cilantro packed in, a half a cup of parsley also packed in, one cup of walnuts, two teaspoons of minced garlic, a half a teaspoon of salt, a quarter teaspoon of cayenne pepper, one teaspoon of cumin, two teaspoons of Camille Sunili. And that's a Georgian spice um, from the Black Sea. And it's just, it's an incredible combination of spices and it really makes the recipe. One teaspoon of tamari, one tablespoon of nutritional yeast and three tablespoons olive oil. Also the Kumili Sunili you can um, buy on Amazon um, if you don't have it in your local store. You're gonna start by steaming the beet tops um, for about five minutes. Um, and then put them into some ice water and just you know, lock in that bright green color. And then squeeze out all the water from the beet tops and put it into your food processor. Saute the leeks and celery in a tablespoon of olive oil until they're soft. Add a tablespoon of water at a time if the leeks and celery start sticking to the pan as opposed to adding more oil. Um, and just cook that until the leeks and celery are soft. You're going to toast the walnuts for a few minutes in a heavy cast iron pan to just bring out some of the flavor. And then you're going to put all those things into the food processor with the beet tops. And you're going to puree that um, until really smooth. And you're going to pulse it and pulse it until it's really pureed fine. And then you're going to add the parsley and cilantro and pulse some more along with the rest of the spices and just pulse it until you get the texture that you want. And that is it, it's just so great. You're gonna drizzle in um, the remaining two tablespoons of olive oil. You can put in a little more olive, you, olive oil if you want, but you only need enough to really you know, bring it all together into a nice pate. Um, taste it, adjust the spices. If you want a little bit more salt or kumili sunili, feel free to add those. 
Um, and you're going to serve it with some crudite or crackers or some focaccia, whatever you like. But it's really a delicious, delicious um, pate and comes together really quickly. And you can use, you know, really any greens that you have. You can substitute kale, you can sub substitute Swiss chard. Um, so enjoy that. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you, Zara Tangora. She is a chef and culinary consultant, business owner, podcaster, and writer, living and working in Brooklyn, New York. Her latest food project is Zaza Lasagna, launched in the winter of 2021. And Zara and longtime friend and coworker, Ryan Crossman, partnered in creating Zaza. And they took their love of Italian-American food and gracious hospitality and adapted it into a heat and eat at home pop-up. Zaza has been featured in a variety of publications, including The New Yorker, The Infatuation, Eater New York, Busboy, and Brooklyn Magazine. Zara also hosts two podcasts on Heritage Radio Network, Life a Banquet and Processing. Um, processing she does with her mother, who is a bereavement um, therapist, and I was a guest on her podcast uh, last month and had a lot of fun talking with them there. Uh, Zara has written for various publications, including Lenny Letter, Divet Magazine, and Dana Cohen's upcoming Speaking Broadly. And so Zaza, Zaza, <laughs> Zara, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome. Pleasure to be here, Bhavani. Hello. How's it going? Thank you for having me. Ah, uh, it's great. Great to have you. Um, thanks for getting up and doing this with me. Oh, so um, I first met you. I mean, I know I've known your mother for years, but I first met you at your restaurant in Brooklyn. Um, you had a restaurant, Brucey's, um, back in 2005 or 2000. We opened in like 2010 and then ended up closing in 2016. Oh, okay. Okay. It wasn't that long ago. Okay. You opened in <laughs> 2010. <is> <laughs> 2010, you closed in 2016. So you did it for six years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Almost seven. Yeah. It was a really, it was a great run. Uh huh. Um, that's wonderful. And what kind of restaurant was it? Brucey was a farm to table Italian American restaurant, and we would change our menu every single day. So for over six years, every time you came in, there was a different menu and we made as much stuff in house as we could. We made our own bread, pasta, cheeses, butters, really anything, whole animal butchery, everything we could do in house. We did in house and it was a blast. Uh-huh. And I, I was reading about it before our interview, just, you know, looking up as much as I could about you. And I was shocked to hear that that was your first foray into the restaurant world. You had not worked in a kitchen before. Is that true? Correct. Yeah. No experience in kitchens. I mean, aside from, uh, you know, a job that like a lot of people who grew up on Long Island have working in pizza shops and, and ice cream parlors and stuff like that. But really like my, uh, my experience in the food world was pretty minimal. Um, and I kind of just like jumped right into it. Uh-huh. Your mom is, was a chef too and had a, a food business for many years. Yeah, my um, mom and dad had a place called the Love and Oven in Huntington in the 1970s that was very eclectic and fun. And I always joke that they like brought quiche to Long Island, you know, and like, uh -huh. um, but yeah, they were, they were amazing cooks, both my parents, really wonderful and talented. So I feel like genetically I absorbed some of their, you know, cooking skills and their love for food. I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, when you grow up around it, 
um, it's hard not to because we so we attach so much love with our food, right? Totally. So what do you tell us about what you're doing now? What kind of work are you doing now? Um, well, uh, as you mentioned in, uh, in the, in the description of who I am, <laughs> I've been working for, I've been working uh, for myself doing a, a pop-up called Zaza Lasagna. So, you know, uh, a lot of people in the food industry had to really pivot when COVID happened. Um, I had been working, um, as a, as a private caterer, I ran my own and still do my own boutique catering company and consulting company. Um, and I did that since closing, uh, Brucey and, you know, like, like most people, I had a pivot kind of when COVID happened. Um, and so my business partner, Ryan and I decided in the winter of 2021 to kind of bring some of what we did at, at Brucey, um, to a COVID era kind of, you know, project, um, which meant instead of in, in house dining, we did to go stuff via pop-up, but we tried to bring that same kind of sense of warmth to it and get people, give people a little something to like, look forward to and what felt like an incredibly dark time. So we started Zaza lasagna and it's like, take home, you know, pre-order pop-up stuff. We do it seasonally. It's during the winter. So we are now done with the winter season. Um, but yeah, it felt like a really good way to kind of engage emotionally with people in our immediate community, um, and the larger Brooklyn area. We definitely had people outside of the Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill area coming as well, but you know, um, it was a very rough time as we all know, listening COVID for a variety of different reasons. And I think, uh, we wanted to do whatever we could to offer a little, a little bit of warmth and joy to people. Um, mm -hmm. and additionally try to you know, each week we donate some of our profits to different charitable organizations. So it was a way to kind of raise funds for that as well. And so it just felt like a really, you know, it's felt like a really wonderful project. So you said because winter's over, you're not doing it anymore. So um, are you going to do a different pop-up? Uh, well, you know, we're going to be kind of stepping our toes back into the Zaza pop-up in a kind of summer oriented way. I actually am lucky uh, and then I'm going to Italy for a month to do some R&R and R&D. <laughs> so like a little business and uh, kind of pleasure trip, um, hopefully get some inspiration and kind of figure out the next steps. But, um, you know, we'll definitely be doing some Zaza stuff over the summer. Um, and yeah, and then on to the next phase, which is TBD. But we definitely have some fun stuff in mind for what to do. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And you're staying with Ryan as your partner. Yes. Yeah. Ryan like and I have worked together for like a over a decade and he's a great guy. So yeah, we, we work well together. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and when are you going to Italy? Are you going to time it for Terra Madre for slow food in September? Oh, no, actually I am going to Italy quite soon, Bavani. I'm leaving one week from today. Oh, oh yeah. well, you might want to go back again in September. You know, September is, um, Slow Food has their international Terra Madre every other year. And of course they skipped um, the year during COVID, um, right. but they're scheduled again in September. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, experience if you've never been to Terra Madre, it's really fun. Oh, fabulous. So um, what was the hardest part of owning your own restaurant? Um, well, you know, I think there are the things that many, uh, many people kind of know about like what's hard about owning a restaurant because they think it's a cliche at this point to be like, owning a restaurant is so hard. And you know what? It really is for all the kind of obvious reasons, right? Um, like owning any business is hard. Um, 
a lot of, obviously it's a ton of work and a, a lot of things can go wrong, but I really felt very honestly, like the hardest part of owning my own restaurant, especially as a younger person, I opened Brucey when I was 26 years old, um, was trying to really rein in. It's hard to be at, it's hard to be at the helm of something because there's nobody who's keeping you in check sometimes. And I, I'm a, I feel like I'm a, a nice boss and a, and a good boss and a good, and a good human. However, as at 26, when you are working 80 hours a week and you're stressed and everything is so intense, um, and there's no one who's going to tell you, Hey, don't fly off the handle. Don't get, don't get angry about this thing. Don't yell. Don't throw a pan against the wall, which is, you know, not the way to behave. Like to keep yourself in check is hard. And then to deal I don't know, just with the, I think also the perils of how capitalism informs how we feel like we need to run businesses, you know, like a boss at the top and then there's workers at the bottom. Like I'm not comfortable with that structure really. So for me, ultimately like that became difficult because I don't, at the time I didn't see another way of how a restaurant could operate, you know, and kind of um, in less of a, you know, kind of capitalist structure which I don't think is really good for anyone. So those are kind of the things that maybe people don't think about that are difficult. At least they were difficult for me. The kind of like personal growth that is um, inherently tied to that kind of position and whether you decide to take the opportunity to grow from it or not. Um, I wanted to, and those growing pains were really hard for me. And ultimately why I kind of decided I wanted to stop doing it. I mean, we were extremely successful when I closed Brucey, but I was like, Hey, I don't know if this is the kind of person I want to be. I don't know if these are the kind of arguments I want to get in or the kind of things that I'm comfortable with keeping me up at night. Or do I like myself at the end of the day when I come home? And I couldn't always really, I don't know that I could say yes to those questions more often than I could say no. And for me, I really needed to take a step back and assess how I could be involved in food and still feel good about what I was doing with my little bit of time on this earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, what made you choose to have a different menu every day? Because I, I can imagine, you know, as a person who <clears throat> is a chef and has worked in many restaurants, how challenging that must be. I, I certainly am a farm to table person and believe in seasonal, you know, so seasonal specials make yeah. sense, but to have everything different every day, how did you manage that? Well, I think uh, you mentioned earlier that I hadn't ever worked in a restaurant before. And so I think that naivete was like part of why I decided to do that. You know, at the time um, before I opened in 2010, I was super inspired by some of my local haunts, which was like Andrew Tarlow's restaurants, like Diner and Marlowe and Sons. And I was like, I remember going in there in my early 20s and being like, wow, this is so cool. They change the menu every day and everything's local. And this is awesome. And I'm like, this is the future of how people should do restaurants, you know, and I opened Brucey and I'm like, I really want to keep it exciting and keep it fresh. Cause I'm, you know, I'm a creative person when I'm making something new, I'm like really inspired. And there was something to me about meeting that challenge of what I always called a menu puzzle every day. Cause if you change your menu every day, right? Like, let's say you char five quarts of scallions. And then at the end of that day, when you're using charred scallions, it's not like you necessarily use five quarts of charred scallions. Maybe you have two quarts of charred scallions left. So the next morning it's like, well, now what do we do with charred scallions if we're not running that same dish again? So it's like a puzzle, right? You're always putting the pieces together. 
Um, and I think that ultimately it was the thing that made Brucey a special place and kind of like, you know, really endeared us to uh, our very loyal and wonderful regulars who remained regulars till this day with Zaza. Um, and it really taught me a lot about, I mean, cooking and food. I think what, to answer your question more accurately, what drove me to do that was, um, you know, uh, being naive and not understanding how much work would be and being creative. And, um, I don't know. I'm glad I did it, even though it was really, really wild and really difficult, but ultimately I think it was, it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, one, one benefit of doing that I can say is you don't have to have it exact, um, each time. Like, you know, one thing that, you know, drives people crazy is if you order, um, you know, a pasta dish at a restaurant one week, and then you go back the next week and you order the same dish, but it tastes different, you know? that's not okay. Right. People, <laughs> yeah. people expect it to be the same, but if the dish is different every time, you don't have any expectations, you're free to create each time and create it anew. That's true. And then also I think the other than expectation becomes, are they going to hit, you know, Oh, I had this like incredible, you know, pasta with smoked shrimp and like lavender, like that was so great. Like when I come in next time and cause we did things that were like, you know, maybe like more interesting like that. And then we do things like fettuccine Alfredo, but trying to make it the best possible version. So this is all to say when people came in and got the fettuccine Alfredo, they're expecting, you know what I mean? The expectation is that everything you make warms your soul in the exact same way. And we hoped it did. And I know it probably did most of the time, but yeah, like expectation in general is one of the most difficult things about having a restaurant because, you know, people come in and they really, really want it to be a certain way. And everybody's certain way they want it is different. Actually, Mm -hmm. some people want it to be really loud and some people want the music to be lower and some people want it to be really salty. And some people want it not to be salty at all. So it's like to meet everyone's expectations actually. And then to go back to your first question is actually one of the hardest parts of owning a restaurant. Yeah. Well, expectations, you know, if you're on a spiritual path, expectations will trip everybody up all the time anyway. I mean, expectations in everything in life is where we all struggle with, you know, you have expectations from people in your lives, you have expectations from places, you have expectations. And it's hard to always be in the moment and be accepting of things the way they are and to let your expectations go. Absolutely. Um, it trips people up all the time, you know, who are trying to become better people. And uh, I know I had an experience like that um, just last night with my daughter. You know, we're having a family gathering and I have an expectation, you know, that they're that they will show up. And when they have another idea about what their plan is, and it doesn't include that, yeah, um, it's really difficult, you know? And so, you know, it's always challenging one's expectations. It is, yeah. So anyway, so that was the um, hardest part of owning a restaurant. What was the best part of owning a restaurant? Well, uh, I can say unequivocally that the best part of owning a restaurant is the human interactions and the relationships you make both with your staff and the people you work with, um, and with the customers, um, and with the purveyors and delivery people and all the people who you got to interface with in a day. And And just even the people in the neighborhood, like the community that we built, even with folks who weren't customers, like neighboring businesses and stuff like 
to me, that was always the best part. The people who I worked alongside um, with at Brucey, like my fellow cooks and chefs and porters and um, servers and everyone have become like my like lifelong friends, truly, which is wonderful. Um, and I think that most people who work in restaurants would say that those relationships are become so strong so quickly. And that is amazing. Um, the community and the regulars that we had at Brucey were so incredibly kind and sweet and so loyal and loving. And what I realized through the years and people would tell me like, Hey, we came here on our first date. And then we, I, we came here after we got engaged. And then we came here when we found out we were pregnant and we came here after our parent died because we were sad. You know what I mean? And there were so many of those stories. And, you know, I, I remember so distinctly, like once like dropping off a plate of food at someone's table. And it was the one thing actually that we did have on the menu all the time, which was a dish with tagliatelle and tomato butter and fried Brussels sprouts and homemade stracciatella. And we were famous for it. So we, one thing we always kept, um, and I dropped, I put the plates down in front of, I sometimes would run food out of the kitchen myself, even though I was a chef. And I just goes, oh my God, I love this. Like to his friends and just, you know, that feeling of like, oh wait, you know, like sometimes, yes, this is just food, but also like food restaurants, like these are trail markers uh, in life. These are like, you know, tactile and sensual experiences that remind us of like, special times in our lives and being able to be a part of that experience in people's lives felt very meaningful to me. So to me, that is the easiest part. Um, I loved that. It like sustained me even through the most difficult times and the difficult times after I closed um, to this day, sometimes I call upon those memories and I've been lucky enough to kind of re-engage with those feelings and those people through Zaza. So. Nice. Very nice. Um, yeah, you know, I think to be in the restaurant business, you really have to love making people happy. You know, the hospitality part of the restaurant is so important. I mean, I've gone to restaurants where the food is good, but the hospitality and the service is so bad, I would never go back. Right. Right. Yeah. It just it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth, even if the taste from the food was good. Exactly. So, you know, hospitality and creating that sense of community in your restaurant is so important yeah. um and yeah. i think it's about boundaries too and i think you know we uh in this country are kind of uh, you know installed with the belief of like the customer is always right mentality and so it creates this weird dynamic and so at brucey i always felt like we're all right we're all people you know what i mean if you, we are like in a contract, we were kind to each other and we are here to take care of you come in to be taken care of. And we will like do that. Um, and you will also treat us nicely. And so people who can, uh, exist in, in Brucey, at least within that, those parameters and those boundaries, like we had a great time. And I think that was important for just like setting the tone of what we were doing there. It was, a, we wanted to just create a space in which everybody was having a nice time and really felt respectful to each other. I was very serious about making sure that anyone kind of crossed that line on the other way, you know what I mean? Like, and was unkind to a server or anything like that, that they, they knew that, that this wasn't going to be the place for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but I think it kind of created a really like a mutual respect and to have good boundaries yeah. and support. That's, that's so important. So, um, you know, I know you, you said you did not go to culinary school. This is, you know, you kind of are self-taught, which I am too. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, a lot of, the best chefs are, you know, 
just have it in their blood and have bring the creativity to it and go for it. Um, if you weren't cooking, what's your next passion? What, what would you, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't cooking? Well, um, I am artistic. So I feel like I, I have a couple of kind of different ways I could have seen my life going. I think, uh, if I hadn't been cooking or even if I stopped cooking now, um, I'm definitely very interested in writing. I do a decent amount of writing. I'm looking to do more and get better. Um, I'm very interested in film. I feel like I could see myself in a, in a different life or in this life, um, kind of pivoting to doing like screenwriting. I've written a screenplay that I'm looking to kind of put together and make for a short film. So I feel like that's my kind of DL passion and something I'm looking to kind of go into. And also, I mean, like, I love, uh, my grandmother Vi on my mom's side was an interior decorator and had an interior decorating business. And that is something I'm also very interested in. So those are more like career oriented paths. And, and on the side, like I'm very, as I get older and learn and kind of immerse myself more in the world, um, I'm more and more interested in like advocating for social justice and in volunteering and in working with different organizations that I feel like are, you know, very important. And we live in such a time where there are so many important things. I mean, you're saying it's Earth Day, right? Like, I mean, the core, one of the core issues of us surviving as a as a planet is to, you know, save the environment, um, so to speak. That's oversimplifying right. it, but like, you know, do what we can to enforce climate justice. Um, there's, I'm very interested in like the justice of, in the carceral system um, and, 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 and so on and so on. So I feel like those are the two things that I could see myself doing um, if not cooking. And even if cooking, obviously social justice work and uh, advocacy is something I am interested in either way, no matter what my other professional path leads me to. Yeah. One of my favorite experiences in my cooking was having the direct number to the kitchen at Occupy Wall Street, you know, Amazing. you know, and, you know, bringing all my leftovers, you know, I was doing a lot more catering at the time, you know, bringing all those leftovers and helping guide leftovers from parties and whatever, bringing it down to Occupy Wall Street was just, you well, know, definitely a highlight. Um, I really enjoyed, enjoyed that. And so, you know, bringing, you know, combining your food passion and social justice issues is just, um, you know, really speaks to me as well. Um, so I know when you talk about it, adapting your career to the pandemic, you know, you said you did the Zaza lasagna. Mm -hmm. um, how else did you manage through the pandemic? Um, Ooh, well, um, I feel like for the first couple months, like many people, uh, I just managed by getting through every day and trying to you know, luckily I feel very fortunate to have a, a car. And so, um, I was able to go from my home to Brooklyn and take drives out to, you know, Robert Moses and take walks. So those, those are some of the ways in which I actually survived, um, in a career way. I feel like, again, like many people, my career was completely stalled for like, you know, three months, which ended up being okay. Again, extremely privileged to have gotten through that, um, unscathed those couple of months, you know, I didn't lose my home or anything like that. And I know so many people were not as lucky. And so I feel again, extremely privileged to say that. Um, and then after that, it started coming back a bit with catering stuff, you know, so I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a private caterer. We, I, that my clients started kind of coming back. People were doing things outside, et cetera. 
Um, and it was, it was a little bit less than before, but you know, kind of made it through until winter 2021, where we were like, let's, let's do Zaza. So, you know, there was not a lot of other, you know, I didn't do like online cooking classes or anything like that. Like I know a lot of people in the, um, in the food world kind of maybe kind of got a little bit more creative than I, but I was lucky enough that some of my business for my catering came back pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you, um, you know, with some of the profits you gave to some of the social causes that you, you know, felt dear to, um, can you share those with us? Absolutely. What were some of the yeah, organizations? Yeah. I would love to. Uh, so immediately, like kind of in, right in the beginning of the pandemic, um, some friends of mine started um, a nonprofit called the Service Workers Coalition, which was going to help people who were in the service industry who needed financial help. And they would give grocery stipends um, to folks in the service industry. They are no longer uh, you know, an organization that is collecting donations um, for, for, you know, it's obviously the situation has changed a bit now. So, but they were doing incredible work. And so we would donate to them pretty much as much as we could with Zaza during that first year. Um, and then we kind of pivoted this past season to doing a, a portion of the profits each week to a different organization. So the one that is nearest and dearest to my heart and to everyone at Zaza is New Hour for Women and Children, uh, which is right on Long Island. And um, it started by a family friend of ours named Serena. Um, and New Hour provides direct aid to women who are currently in the carceral system or post-incarcerated women and their families. Um, and helps them get back on their feet, provides them, you know, with all kinds of different services and, uh, also does an incredible amount of advocacy for, um, for the people who are involved in a very unjust carceral system. So that was hugely important to us. Um, we donated to a lot of other people, including St. John's Bread and Life, which is the food pantry here in New York, Super Collective, another, uh, food pantry, Know Your Rights Camp, um, which we donated to during the Super Bowl week, which is Colin Kaepernick's uh, organization. Um, I mean, just a, a lot. Uh, trans Santa, uh, the Trans um, Law Center. So we just really tried to pick uh, Ransom for Ukraine. Um, yeah, those just to name a few. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, there's so many, right? We're, we're living through such a challenging time. Yeah. in the history of the planet yeah um, really there are. are so many causes to give to and that's you know i i say this all the time you know i know people can't do everyone can't do everything there's so many things but everyone can do something you know no Absolutely. matter where you are in your level of privilege um you know if you are privileged you can do something you know those that are working three jobs just to get by all they can do is manage to get by yeah. And we need to help. And so um, I completely agree. And I feel like I was having a chat to a friend of mine the other day who's extremely involved in climate justice and just feeling defeated by the amount of like, what can you do? It becomes so overwhelming sometimes. So that's where I think like local advocacy is so important. Um, and then also just like knowing who the people are who are going to be put into positions of power who align with your values. And if you're a progressive, trying to fight for people who are going to support progressive agenda to, you know, to help us with the things that we think are important. So, yes, or picking up litter off the street. I mean, there's such small and big ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
can I ask you a little bit about your trip to Italy? Where are you going? Where? Ah, well, um, I am going to Rome with my parents, which I'm very excited about because I really love Rome. They've not been. Um, and they're celebrating their 70th birthdays and their 25th anniversary together. So Your mother's going- never been to Rome? She's never been to Rome. Not yet. That's hard to believe. Okay. One week. Um, and then I'm going to go to Puglia for two weeks by myself and then up to Tuscany to visit some friends. Nice. Very excited. And what, what are some of your favorite Italian, um, foods that you hope to get over there? The food there, you know, is different than here. You know, sometimes people think of Italian only as like red sauce and, you know, there's a very different, you know, every region of Italy has kind of different food, um, food seasons, you know, or food, um, um, that are recognized as that um, territory. Yeah. So, well, talk okay. us about that. I would love to, Pavani. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so, um, you're absolutely right. And when you talk about like slow food and hyper regionality, I mean, Italy is so, so specific. There are things that you will see in Rome that you would never see anywhere else. You know, you would never see spaghetti carbonara in Tuscany or in Puglia. Um, and, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so excited about going to Rome and having pasta and pizza, right? The four classic Roman pastas, Alimentriciana, Alla Grisha, Cacio e Pepe, and Carbonara, like, give it to me. I'm so psyched about what that. What are the first two that you said? I don't know. What are uh, the first Cacio two dishes? Pepe. That Ooh. I know. So Cacio e Pepe, cheese and pepper, and then right. Alla Grisha, which is, so the four classic Roman pastas are essentially all riffs off each other based on like what might've been left in the house on what day. So maybe you start with all the riches, right? You have the carbonara on the first day you're cooking. So carbonara is guanciale, pecorino, black pepper, and egg. Um, and then you have alla grisha, which is very similar. It has all those same things except no egg. Then you get the cacio e pepe, which is just the pecorino and black pepper. And then amatriciana is guanciale, tomato, and onion. And so mm-hmm. those are the four classic Roman pastas, um, Roman fried artichokes. I mean, how fabulous. I know you're vegan. That would be a yeah. perfect thing for you. Uh-huh. Um, punterelle salad, which is like seasonal. We might be on the cusp of having punterelle for anyone who's never had punterelle. What a fabulous, interesting vegetable, like a bitter green. It's all, you uh, shock it in ice water. And it's this crunchy, delicious salad. They usually have both anchovies and lemon. Um, pizza, of course, my God, the pizza in Italy, in, uh, Rome is so fabulous. Um, and then I'm interested, I can't wait to go to Puglia cause I've only been briefly and I'm really excited about some of the things they have there, which is a lot of seafood. Um, a lot of burrata. That is where burrata comes from. I know America is now we've been in a burrata craze for the past decade, but folks, this uh-huh. is where burrata comes from. It comes from Puglia. I'm so excited to try it, um, straight from the source. And, uh, yeah, like a lot of fresh raw seafood. They have, uh, they're famous for their gambari rosso, which is their red shrimp, which I um, can't wait for. And uh-huh. in Tuscany, just peasant food, beans, delicious beans and olive oil. That's like my favorite thing. So can't wait to go to Tuscany for the beans and olive oil. Uh-huh. Sounds so good. Yeah. So good. You know, when you talk about regional foods, I remember going, the first time I went to Terramadre, just being shocked at the, competition almost between the parmesan you know like yeah. whose parmesan is aged <laughs> longer or better or you know and and how um 
discerning their taste buds are because they can actually taste the Parmesan and, and all the Parmesans would taste fairly similar to me. Some might be a little more pungent than others, but they could tell, oh, this Parmesan is from Puglia or this Parmesan yeah, is from yeah. Tuscany or, yeah. you know, it was just amazing to me. And the same with the prosciutto. I mean, I wasn't tasting that, but, you know, yeah. certain ones are, you know, um, have the acorns or the, you know, you know, depending on what the pigs are eating, you know, exactly. totally affects the flavor of the, of the um, meat. And, of course. you know, I found it fascinating. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool how much they care about food in Italy. And um, I think, you know, the thing that we often see in America, caring about food has become um, like, uh, like a, a hoity-toity kind of thing. And that's sad to me. It's very sad. Again, capitalism, um, the root of all evil. <laughs> but like, you know, it makes it so that people can only, people of privilege are the only people who can enjoy food in that same way. We're talking about in Italy, like appreciating things. Like that is, that should not be something for only rich people. You know what I mean? It should be for all people. Food is from the earth. It's like, it should be a, a right you know what I mean? Not mm -hmm. a privilege to have healthy, delicious food. And so that's something that I always take away when I go to Italy, how, you know, every, most people there um, have access to delicious whole foods. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's terrible that that's not the case mm -hmm. here. Yeah. You know, although, you know, what you said was your favorite of olive oil and beans, right. um, you certainly, you know, you certainly can make that on a budget and it's delicious. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Maybe That's, can you can you share what you would do with beans and pasta? Like one I'd of your favorites? That. I would Thank love you. to. I I love beans. Folks, I'm a bean queen. I absolutely love beans. What are your favorite beans? I mean, that is like asking for like a favorite. I don't know. I don't have any children. I was like, I was asking for a favorite child. Um <laughs> so my favorite bean, I think, if I really had to say, is gonna be classic cannellini bean. A good cannellini bean is so nice. So I like beans <laughs> with leeks and some hard herbs or maybe sage, but like, you know, like thyme, rosemary, like a bay leaf, and then uh leeks, garlic lots of olive oil, some either stock or um, water, throw them in like, I put them in the pressure cooker, but you can definitely do it on the stove top. Um, and then when they're done and they're tender and they're kind of brothy and creamy, lots, lots, lots more olive oil in there, little pecorino or parmigiano on top. And you've got a, you got a meal going and then, you know, go from there. I mean, you could put beans if you eat meat with like a protein or a fish um, I love them like tossed with pasta and then like an arugula, a lemony arugula salad plopped right on top of pasta and beans. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, delicious. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've been using as, now that I'm vegan, you know, if I'm looking for a pasta dish or a, a pasta dish in, that's a little richer than just, um, you know, tomatoes, um, you know, I make a cream with cashews. You know, I've oh, shared yeah. many recipes like that, but I did a lemon pasta a few weeks ago that was just so light. I did there wasn't so much cream that it was heavy. Yeah. But you know, pureeing the cashews in water and um adding a little bit of nutritional yeast, but a lot of lemon and lemon rind and arugula and cannellini bean. I mean, just so good. How so fabulous. good. Um, it's just great. Great. I need the recipe. <laughs> Anytime. Um, 
So what's your favorite pasta shape? Uh, I'm a traditionalist, Bavani. I really like, and I like a twirl and I like spaghetti. Specifically, I like a dry spaghetti preferred to like a fresh spaghetti. Of course, like I will, I will basically eat any, actually I will eat any pasta shape. There's no pasta shape that I don't <laughs> like, but I prefer a twirl. I like the mouthfeel of a twirl better than like a short shape, but uh-huh. Um, spaghetti definitely and then if I had to go short shape I love radiatore which is like little radiator shapes those are harder to oh. find they're very satisfying especially if you have something that like can get stuck in the little grates you know what I mean like some kind of yeah. sauce or like a like maybe like a lentil or a pea or something like that uh-huh. so yeah those are my two favorites spaghetti and radiatore well I love spaghetti too and you know as a vegan you really can't eat fresh pasta because fresh pasta all has egg in it so yeah if I go to a nice Italian restaurant, you know, I we, we go to Italian restaurants a lot because it's easy to eat vegan there. Yeah, yeah. But if I go to a fancy Italian restaurant, they go, oh, we only have fresh pasta. I'm like, I'm out of there. Exactly. <laughs> it's not, it's not a pasta I can eat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love fresh pasta, but there is something, and I think that actually, interestingly <laughs> enough, I think there's something in uh, kind of the American culinary zeitgeist where we believe that fresh pasta is supreme. Now, fresh pasta is delicious, but like in Italy, it's not that fresh pasta is better. It's just different, right? And you use it for different things. So like talking again about the hyper-regionality of Italian uh, cooking, you know, you're only really going to see tagliatelle. I mean, you're going to primarily see tagliatelle in Emilia Romana, and you're going to see it primarily with bolognese and you'll never see spaghetti bolognese in Italian, in the Emilia Romana. You'll only see fresh tagliatelle bolognese. So all other kind of variations, that's not like what they do there. And, you know, again, like spaghetti vongole, like spaghetti with clams that comes from a different region. That's maybe a little bit more widespread in Italy than bolognese. But what I'm trying to say is that each pasta shape, whether dried or fresh has its own function and neither one is actually better. So if you're at home being like, I'm having dried pasta. And I, I think that's like, you know, it's not as good as having fresh. It's not, that's not true. It's not true. Dry pasta is just as good. It's just different. Right. Right. So in Italy, um, you know, there's so many more rules about what you can mix and match with mm-hmm. than there are here, you know, here kind of, there's no real rules. You know, you can certainly make a pasta with mushrooms and put Parmesan cheese on it if you want, yes. or, or a linguine, you know, um, um, linguine with clam sauce and put Parmesan cheese on it. But no, you cannot do that there. Yes, that's um, true. Very strict. Are there any are any rules there that you um, find really different than here and um, that you found would affect your cooking here? Yeah. You- I mean, I've cooked, uh, I've worked in Tuscany a bunch and I like worked um, for like a hotel for a little bit. Um, I did some work for a hotel for a little bit and did a big grand tasting dinner. And they were all like, oh, it's like, it's delicious, but it's not, it's not Tuscan. And I'm telling you that I researched how to make, cause I knew they would say this. So I researched not only what's Tuscan, but what's Tuscan in this one town through history. And it still wasn't Tuscan enough because to be truly Tuscan in this area, like their mom had to have made it. If you crush a clove of garlic instead of slice the garlic, I'm telling you like that's how specific some people are, right? So yes, I've found that shocking, but I also find it beautiful and really and really different from how we are here. And also not different because there are people who are like, oh, I don't like chicken cacciatore here, but I like my grandma's, you know what I mean? But I don't like it in any restaurant. And there is something that is beautiful in that because 
it really reminds you of like that food is a lot of times more than food and it doesn't have to be quote good or bad you know even though i don't really believe in good or bad food like it just has to mean something to you and i think if we are to distill down how specific folks in italy are about their food it really is just about it's about more than that right because a lot of things taste good a lot of different ways like like parmigiano tastes good on spaghetti with clams i think it could you know what i mean i know it's a huge no but it's really about the tradition it's about how your family did things and it's about essentially like then if you're to distill that family and about you know history and about tradition and and then that i think is about finding some sense of permanence and stability in a very scary thing which is called being alive <laughs> you know what i mean and so I think if I, I have thought about this a lot, I think if we're gonna kind of trace it back and back and back, food tradition has a lot to do with upholding history because we wanna feel like something in this world makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, slow food, which I'm so such a big promoter of is all about tradition. I mean, so much of it has to do with that tradition. And, um, and yet as a slow food lover and going to Italy quite a bit for slow food, I find it challenging, you know, it's like I like when, you know, if I'm at the end of my meal and I want a dessert, I like having coffee with my dessert. Right. No, right. not there. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. coffee is a separate course. You have your dessert, right. then you can have your coffee. Right. Um, and if you want your coffee with your dessert, they say no, they won't bring it to you. Yeah. You know? If you want cheese on your pasta and they don't think it goes, they will say no, they won't bring yeah. it to you. Yeah, I mean, I try to adapt where I'm at. You know, I know that like I'm not someone who is especially in my cooking adheres to rules, but I also deeply appreciate tradition. And I also like really like to meet people where they're at to understand like why they, when I'm traveling, especially why do you want me to experience this in this way? You know what I mean? And I'm like, I can experience things in my own way, whatever, however I want when I'm at home. Again, a, a deep privilege. And so in like traveling and experiencing things, and yes, some things are very funny and weird. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But like, you know, I don't know. I think that like, it's interesting to me because I think when I started cooking, especially I had a bit of an ego, which is ridiculous for a 26 year old who never worked in a restaurant before. I thought I knew everything. And now I'm 38. <laughs> And I realized I don't know a lot and that's a good thing. And, and that's an exciting thing. And so even when I think things don't make sense, I'm like, oh, hmm, why do they do that like that? And what can I kind of learn from that? Maybe I won't go back and do it the same way, but I'll understand the separation of flavors in a different way that feels like, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's very funny that you say that because I have, you know, similar type of thing. Um, you know, the older I get, the more I realize how much I don't know, as opposed to how much more I know. Yeah. Um, you really appreciate learning and what you don't know and what you still need to learn. Yeah, I think it, it speaks to a certain sense of vulnerability. I think like we need to feel when we're younger people protective of like who we, you know, like I need to edge away for myself in this, in this room. I need to like kind of make space for myself. And part of that is having a big ego and thinking, you know, a lot because it's like almost dangerous not to. And as we get older, I think it feels, you feel, hopefully the goal is to feel more comfortable in the vulnerability of not knowing everything. Right. Right. So do you think you might want to do a restaurant again, or you've done that? No. 
<laughs> no, no, I would never do a restaurant again. And I say that with, um, you know, people, I would never tell anyone else not to do it, but for myself, like I, I always say I'll open a restaurant again. If somebody else puts up all the money and I can work, uh, six hours a day, four days a week, and nobody ever calls me when the dishwasher breaks. Sure. I'm in, but that's not how it goes. So for me, I think I want to find a way to feed my soul in the positive ways that a restaurant does and operate in a way that feels more ethically and emotionally fulfilling to me at where I'm at now. Yeah. Yeah. One of the hardest things about restaurant for me, because I have wanted to do a restaurant my whole life, but when I, I know what the hours are and I'm just not willing to, you know, there's no balance. You cannot have a social life and take vacations and, you know, enjoy the summer Yeah, when you have a restaurant. Yes. And yes. And it takes away, at least for me, and I'm, I know everyone has a different experience. It in one way strengthened my love of food and cooking, of course, because to be immersed in it all the time, but it also takes away. It took away from me, I can say my love of food and cooking because of all the other things that you have to do and deal with. You know what I mean? Like, you know, hiring and, and sometimes unfortunately firing people and, you know, just dealing with, again, to go back to what the first question is dealing with the emotions that come up from that amount of stress and pressure and how to handle them, where to put them, what to do with them, how to like, you know, it's just, it takes, so it can take away from your love of that, what you meant to actually do in the mm-hmm. first place, which again, capitalism, thanks for nothing. Right. Yeah. The business, the business of the business of making money can exactly. take the pleasure away of so many things. I mean, so many people, um, you know, they're ho- end up trying to make a living from their hobbies mm-hmm. and it takes some of the pleasure away, whether you're an artist or musician or a chef, you know, as opposed to doing it as your passion for your love, but then doing something else that is more reasonable for making the money. Because exactly. I mean, I have so many musician friends and they are so talented and so unbelievable and they get a gig and what, you know, for a whole night, they paid a hundred dollars or something. And that's yeah. the same amount that they were paid 20 years ago. You know, yeah. I mean, it hasn't yeah. gone up and it's, you know, you can't make a li- living like that. And so, so many have had to ha- have other jobs for their living and then, you know, just end up having music as what they love to do when they're together with people. Yeah. It's, hard I think it's the same with food. It's hard to find a way in this capitalist structure to combine being happy and staying alive and being safe, which, you know, I feel like money is unfortunately like one way we really have to like, or are able to stay safe, right? Like it's not safe not to have health insurance. It's not safe not to have a home. Like, so I feel like these things all combined make it very difficult to um, exist doing what you love you know, and loving what you do. So, but we can, there, there are ways sometimes, and that's great. And cooking is something that I love. And I very much look forward to continuing to find ways to do it that feel um, correct and fulfilling and that I'm adding value, not only to my own life, but to society through what I do with my work. So I hope that Mm -hmm. I can continue to do that. Yeah. Um, When, where you live, you're in Brooklyn, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Do you, belong to a CSA or do you go directly to any of the local urban farms or farmers well, I, market? Where do you, where do you do most of your shop? 
well, you know, in New York, it's hard during the winter. However, most of the markets are open to all winter long. Um, but the, the choices are obviously limited. I'm very lucky in that I live right near the Carroll Gardens once a week, Sunday farmer's market. I live not too far from my favorite farmer's market in the whole city, which is the Fort Greene market, which is on Saturday mornings. Um, and then I often walk up to the Union Square Green Market, which is on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, which is incredible and gorgeous. And then there's also the Grand Army Market on Saturday. So during the market season, which is right about now, like really May through November um, in New York is when you can really kind of get a lot of stuff. Um, I am a, a very big local at farmer's markets. And I also really try to support my local any local businesses, my local, my local bakery, Caputo's, my local pasta shop, also called Caputo's, owned by a different family though. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, the local butcher shops in my neighborhood. So that's kind of where I'm shopping. I'm usually going definitely to the market and to like local businesses. That's good. And that's, you know, it's great for everyone to hear that because supporting our local small businesses that aren't chains is really wonderful. And, you know, and yet I know where I live, you know, I'm pretty much going to Whole Foods and Trader Joe's um, during the winter months, you know, during the summer, of course, I grow so much of my own and then supplement with the farmer's markets. But um, I just quickly want to mention the farmer's markets uh, in New York, at least do take EBT. So any listeners out there who are using EBT and food stamps, you can use them at the farmer's market, which is really awesome. And also know that you should know about the extra bucks um, programs that you can get also, you know, there's different ones in different states and I'm not sure what the latest is with New York. Some have double up your bucks, which you can get twice as much for, you know, instead of $5 worth of produce for that $5, you can get $10 worth. You know, they're really uh-huh. trying to encourage you to get eat vegetables and then some where you spend $5 and then you get an extra $2 worth of stuff. So depending on, um, what programs they're running right now, but look into that because they have those specials that are really, um, you know, trying to incentivize people to eat healthier food. So they're really great. So Zara, we're just about out of time and you go to Italy next week. I'm so excited for you. Thank you, Bavani. Bunny, this was great. Thank you so much for having me and for doing the show. And I was an honor to be a guest and to chat with you. It was really awesome. Thank you and have a great trip and thanks for joining us and everyone out there who's been listening. Thank you so much for joining. You've been listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. Have a great rest of the day. Bye, Zach.